Before I begin, I would like to acknowledge the Tongva tribes as the first peoples of the land on which this work was developed and is presented. The land on which stands what is now called Los Angeles has a rich history of storytelling from the indigenous communities who continue to live there. And welcome back to the Community Library, a fortnightly podcast about stories and how and why we tell them. I'm your host, Angowri Rice. Often I use fiction for escape. That's what I did when I was a kid. I'd spend endless summer days reading about faraway places and imagining myself there. But now I'm older <laughs> and I've found a different way to enjoy fiction. Rather than a means of escape from my environment, it's a way to understand my environment better. If you haven't visited the community library before, hello, welcome. My name is Angauri and I'm an actor. I've been working in LA for the last four months and so my last few episodes have been about Los Angeles and how I've been trying to understand it through media. Over my time here, I've read five books set in LA, some on purpose, some by accident, and I'm halfway through a sixth now. The books span genre, time period, and neighborhoods, but they're all set in and are partially about LA. And it's been interesting to conduct this little experiment to see if it helps me better understand Los Angeles, a city that has consistently puzzled me. When I first arrived, I read The Moving Target by Ross MacDonald, which I spoke about last episode. But if you happen to miss that one, The Moving Target is the first book in Ross MacDonald's crime series following LA private detective Lou Archer. It was published in 1949 and is set around the same time, unspecified post-war Los Angeles. Here's what the blurb says. Like many Southern California millionaires, Ralph Sampson keeps odd company. There's the sun-worshipping holy man whom Sampson once gave his very own mountain, the fading actress with sidelines in astrology and S&M, Now one of Samson's friends may have arranged his kidnapping. As Lou Archer follows the clues from the canyon sanctuaries of the mega-rich to jazz joints where you get beaten up between sets, the moving target blends sex, greed, and family hatred into an explosively readable crime novel. So because I spoke about this book last episode, I won't dwell on it too much, but I think it was a great introduction to LA fiction for me because it played into the image of LA that I had grown up with watching old Hollywood noir films. This is the LA of Bogart and Bacall, the LA in grainy black and white, the LA swarming with fast-talking gents and wisecracking dames. That is to say, the book is of its time. It's old-fashioned and follows the pattern of noir crime. But there's one thing that struck me as the same, and that was the driving. (laughs) I've previously struggled with LA as a city because it's so car-oriented. It's a sprawling city and only really accessible if you know how to drive or you've wrangled someone who knows how to drive into driving you everywhere, whether that's a friend, a family member, or an Uber driver. (laughs) The same can be said for Ross MacDonald's LA of 1949. As I said last episode, this is a crime novel, but as I mentioned before, it's also a car novel. So much of this book is set in cars, and I actually laughed at how often Lou Archer described his route to get from point A to point B. Sometimes point B was the location of the action, and sometimes the action happened en route in the car. 
I don't know if you've ever seen the SNL skit, The Californians. If you haven't, you should look it up. It's very funny. But LA is actually like that. <laughs> Driving is a constant safe topic of conversation, like the weather. And here people's cars feel like an extension of themselves. I've noticed how frequently people lovingly talk about their cars, all they've been through together, the times they've crashed or narrowly escaped a crash, or the secret low traffic route they use to get from point A to point B. To me, an outsider from a city in which me and all my friends take public transport, driving seems so integral to LA culture. Two years before Ross MacDonald wrote The Moving Target, a female crime writer from LA had made her name with her 1947 novel In a Lonely Place. Though Agatha Christie was considered the queen of crime, it was still rare for a female crime writer to find success in the field of American hard-boiled detective crime. Here's what the book is about. Post-war Los Angeles is a lonely place where the American dream is showing its seamy underside, and a stranger is preying on young women. The suggestively named Dick Steele, a cynical vet with a chip on his shoulder about the opposite sex, is the LAPD's top suspect. Dix knows enough to watch his step, especially since his best friend is on the force. But when he meets the luscious Laurel Gray, a femme fatale with brains, something begins to crack. In a Lonely Place tightens the suspense with taut, hard-boiled prose and stunningly undoes the conventional noir plot. In a Lonely Place is, indeed, unconventional. The audience is in the mind of a violent and twisted man, yet shielded from detailed descriptions of his worst acts, which, of course, makes it all the more unsettling. Other detective fiction from the time always followed flawed and morally grey main characters, but they were still the heroes. They still solved the mystery and saved the day, and that's the difference within A Lonely Place. It's much more cynical in that it follows the villain of the story, yet it's unusually sensitive, too. <laughs> Hughes writes Dick Steele with something that I hesitate to call compassion, but can maybe be described as a deep understanding of a man's loneliness and emasculation in post-war Los Angeles. The most heartbreaking thing about Dick Steele is that he desperately wants people to not even care about him, but just to think about him. He twists himself into pretzels to conceal his activities. He gives himself every possible alibi, double-checks everything just in case someone is watching him. But no one is watching him. No one cares. And that's why he continues to toe the line. And there's something tragic in it, a vulnerable exploration that I found lacking in Ross MacDonald's writing. Dorothy B. Hughes is simultaneously harsher and more sensitive with her characters. She exposes them, but she doesn't reduce them to stereotypes. As a person, I knew I hated Dick Steele, but as a reader, something in me related to him and his feeling of loneliness. LA can be a really lonely and isolating city. The population of LA County is around 9 million, and yet I've only met one person who lives in my apartment building. I've only been to the east side once in four months, and I find that people don't really smile or say hi if you pass each other on the street. The corner store is eight blocks away, close for LA, but sometimes it's easier to get same-day delivery than to go out and get something myself. 
So I really related to the physical sense of isolation that Dix feels. But Dix is different in that he's also emotionally isolated, something which I thankfully am not. Dix emotionally isolates himself because he has to in order to keep his secrets that could jeopardize everything. The title of the book, I think, really speaks to this sentiment of loneliness, and it comes up a few times in the novel. The first is when Dix is talking with his friend Brub, who happens to be a detective on the case of the women being strangled around LA. Dix asks what happens if the criminal continues to evade the police, and Brub says, I honestly don't think he ever does escape. He has to live with himself. He's caught there in that lonely place. So what's interesting about this character of Dick Steele is that it's the loneliness that makes me feel sorry for him. And that's what I relate to. And then I remember why he's so lonely and why he deserves it. And the conflict that it sparked in me as a reader was why I loved this book. Moving on to the third book I read about LA. Rather than finding books myself, I quite enjoy it when books find me. And such was the case with The Perishing by Natasha Dion, published in 2021. One of my work friends was telling me about a book she'd just finished reading set in 1930s LA that had a sci-fi twist. And I thought that sounded great. And at the end of the workday, she gave me her copy of The Perishing and I began reading it that night. Here's what it's about. Lou, a young black woman, wakes up in an alley in 1930s Los Angeles with no memory of how she got there or where she's from. Taken in by a caring foster family, Lou dedicates herself to her education while trying to put her mysterious origins behind her. When she befriends a firefighter at a downtown boxing gym, she is shocked to realize that though she has no memory of meeting him, she's been drawing his face for years. Set against the rich historical landscape of Los Angeles, Prohibition, the creation of Route 66, and the collapse of the St. Francis Dam, The Perishing is a stunning examination of love and justice through the eyes of one miraculous woman whose fate seems linked to the city she comes to call home. The Perishing is Dion's second novel, an ambitious foray into historical sci-fi and character study. And Though I don't think it executed everything it set out to do, maybe due to its very short page count, the sections on LA history were my favorite parts. I learned about the collapse of the St. Francis Dam in 1928, a disaster in civil engineering and construction which killed over 400 people. I learned about the protests against the construction of Route 66, of which the Los Angeles portion would demolish thousands of people's homes. I also learned about how oil companies demonized marijuana farms in order to become the dominant car fuel over hemp, which I also learned is a very effective and efficient source of biofuel. I could feel Natasha Dion's love of LA running through this novel in the way she took care to expose the forgotten elements of LA's history. And though The Perishing wasn't a favorite book, I'm glad I read it in conjunction with The Moving Target and In a Lonely Place. The latter two books provide an authentic, yet very narrow perspective of life in early 20th century LA. The contemporary lens of The Perishing allowed Dion to explore issues and histories that were rarely spoken about or represented in the media from the time, such as racial violence and oppression. And the 21st century now has more language with which to articulate these issues. 
So The Perishing is a book I won't easily forget, not necessarily for its story or characters, but for the way it exposed Los Angeles in all its glory and horror. And I want to leave you with one of my favorite quotes about LA. Unlike all the other great American cities, New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, Boston, there is no sensible reason for Los Angeles to exist. Los Angeles was born with no natural port, no good river connections, no suitable harbor sites, and no critical location advantage. And precisely for these reasons, because being born with very little and having no safe place are the fuels for the greatest imaginations, Los Angeles would rise. Imagination and enthusiasm are the currency of world builders. Reading books about the place I'm in is something I got from my dad. When he knew I was going to be in LA for a while, he bought me books set in Los Angeles and sent them to my apartment. And one of them was Southland by Nina Revoire, published in 2003. A book my dad hadn't read himself, but he thought it looked good. Los Angeles Times bestseller and winner of the Lambda Literary Award, here's what it's about. A young Japanese-American woman, Jackie Ishida, is in her last semester of law school when her grandfather, Frank Sakai, dies unexpectedly. While trying to fulfill a request from his will, Jackie discovers that four African-American boys were killed in the store Frank owned during the Watts riots of 1965. Along with James Lanier, a cousin of one of the victims, Jackie tries to piece together the story of the boys' deaths. Moving in and out of the past, Southland weaves a tale of Los Angeles in all of its faces and forms. So my fourth book set in LA, Southland, included elements of the three previous books I'd read. We had sections set in the 1930s and 40s, descriptions of post-war LA, and also new elements like the 1960s Watts riots and the 1994 Northridge earthquake. If the previous three books were all snapshots of LA in a particular time and place, Southland was an epic, sweeping time periods and neighborhoods to paint a broader portrait of Los Angeles and its identity. There were many things I loved about Southland, separate from its descriptions of LA. It's exceptionally well-written, the characters are distinctive and sympathetic, and though the web of characters was sometimes confusing, I was never bored. The book covers romance, death, grief, war, violence, and even has an element of mystery. It's a great combination of things that I typically love in books. But the thing that stood out to me about Southland was the difference in the representation of World War II. In The Moving Target and In a Lonely Place, both set in post-war Los Angeles, the male protagonists feel a kind of hopelessness after the war, like that was the one place they'd really felt valued and worthy, like they were doing something important. This was the case for Dick Steele especially, who had completely lost his sense of purpose after the war. But in Southland, the Japanese character's experience of World War II is completely different. The character Frank Sakai volunteers to be part of the 442nd Regiment, a regiment composed almost entirely of Japanese-American soldiers. Sakai describes how strange it feels to serve for the USA, a country which has incarcerated all of his Japanese friends and family in internment camps. For Frank, there is no pride in serving in the war. When young Jackie asks him why he doesn't like talking about the war, he says, because it didn't make any difference. Jackie is confused, but we understand that Frank means that despite him risking his life for the US, 
When he came home, Japanese Americans were still the enemy. It's an important contrast to see how the war inflated the importance of a white man like Dick Steele and treated Japanese Americans as enemy aliens, that is, until they needed more soldiers on the battlefield. Much like The Perishing, Southland explores the somewhat forgotten histories of Los Angeles, weaving an impressive story through time, place, and character. This next book was also a complete accident. I was given a copy of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, a new novel from established YA and new adult author Gabrielle Zevin. I didn't at all know that the majority of the book would take place in Los Angeles, especially since the story begins in New York. But here's what it's about. When childhood frenemies Sam Mazer and Sadie Green cross paths again nine years after their falling out, they form a legendary collaboration that will launch them into stardom. Before even graduating college, they have created their first blockbuster video game. Spanning 30 years from Cambridge, Massachusetts to Venice Beach, California, Tomorrow is a dazzling and intricately imagined novel that examines the multifarious nature of identity, games as art form, technology and the human experience, disability, failure, the redemptive possibilities in play, and above all, our need to connect. Both of our protagonists in the story are from California, but they go to college on the East Coast and that's where the story begins. And the move back to LA happens around a third of the way through the book. So this book wasn't at all about LA, but the parts that did describe LA really made me reflect on my feelings about the city. There was a particular scene in which Sadie's boyfriend is trying to convince her she shouldn't move to LA and all the reasons it's a terrible city and she will hate it. (laughs) And while reading this scene, I realized that three months ago, I would have agreed with every argument he made. I mean, for me, it was a no-brainer. Of course, why would you move to LA when you could live in New York? But now, after spending four months in LA and seeing more of California, though I still understood this character's arguments, I didn't feel the same way about it. This was the first time I realized that California has grown on me in a way that I didn't expect. And it was doubly surprising because I didn't expect tomorrow to challenge me in that way. It surprised me in its discussions of LA, and I surprised myself with how I felt about it. I'm now a third of the way through a sixth book about California, again, one which found me by accident. A friend bought a few copies of Properties of Thirst by Marianne Wiggins for a group of us to read together, and I had no idea it was about California or Los Angeles until I sat down and read the first page. Properties of Thirst, published 2022, is set in Lone Pine, California during World War II. We're following a family who lives on a property on the outskirts of town and a group of military personnel who've been tasked to build and facilitate the Japanese internment camp in Manzanar. So far, I've loved the descriptions of the architecture of the buildings and the shape of the land. And though it's all told in third person, each character has a very distinctive voice. And I want to read you one of my favorite quotes that I've read so far. This is from the patriarch of the family living in Lone Pine. This thing about LA, it's a lot of loud cars. I love how his voice is both crude and serious. What he'd learned, don't fuck with mother nature. Don't fuck with her. Don't underestimate her superior logic. Don't think you can improve upon her grander something. You are a nameless nothing in her cosmic mojo. 
So my last episode was about LA as well. And in that episode, I lamented that I didn't feel close to the city at all. I didn't understand it, even with all the old Hollywood movies and books I was reading about LA. But maybe I was trying too hard. (laughs) Half of the books in this episode found me accidentally, and two of them I had no idea were even set in LA. A friend of mine describes LA as a make-your-own-adventure city, and now that makes sense to me. I think maybe my problem was that I was trying to understand the city without actually going out there and experiencing it. Since making that last episode, I've seen some live music, some theater, a soccer game. I've gone to some farmer's markets and antique stores. I've seen more of California as well. I went to Cambria, I went to the Huntington Library, and soon I'm going to visit San Francisco. But the strangest thing for me was what happened when I left LA for a short trip. I went to Texas, which was a whole adventure in itself. But towards the end of my trip, I found myself missing California. Missing LA, in fact. (laughs) I missed my apartment, I missed my local market, and as trite as it sounds, I missed the ocean breeze. And I think I realized that, of course, I'll never be able to fully understand something just from reading books about it. The key is the experience, not the information. But what I've loved about reading these books about LA is that they haven't told me how I should feel about LA, but they've given me the vocabulary to articulate how I feel. I'm gonna leave you with a quote from The Perishing, which I think accurately describes the trap I fell into with Los Angeles. Hollywood lives here, but Los Angeles will not entertain you. He said the city wants a real relationship with us. And if not, she'll treat you like a floozy, or worse, a tourist, no matter how many years you've lived with her or how much money you've spent on her. A casual encounter. The point is, Mr. Hill said, we have to engage in our world or the world will only show you who you are or what you expected. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, I have some other episodes about LA linked in the show notes for you. If you'd like to keep up to date with what I'm reading, you can follow me on Instagram at the underscore community underscore library, or you can subscribe right here on your favorite podcast app. I hope you are all taking good care of yourselves, reading good books, and I will chat to you soon. Bye. (laughs) Bye.